Have any of you seen the show Mythbusters? This, this kind of popular show on the Discovery Channel several years back where these two guys sought to scientifically test out various myths uh, and see if they held up. So, for example, uh, they tested some of our common expressions like uh, to hit the ground running, right? Which is something we often say. Or another one of the expressions we have, like a bull in a china shop, right? They actually tested these things out. So... So they, they had a sort of a, a race of sorts where they had some people take off from standing still and someone else who started running in place and then was set down on the ground and go. And it turns out that to hit the ground running is not an advantage. Um, the people who started from standing still did a better job at, at getting to the end of that. So that myth was busted, okay? Or the, the bull in a china shop myth. Uh, they actually created this small china shop inside of a bullpen. And then they set a bull loose in there, and the bull actively avoided running into any of the shelves that they had set up. So it turns out that a bull does not wreck a china, a china shop. So, so again, that myth was busted. Um, and they've, they've done this for a number of things. These are just a few. You know, there's the one that, you know, what if you, if you drop a penny from the top of the Empire State Building, it'll kill someone by the time it reaches the ground. They gave that a test. Turns out that's not true. It might hurt, but it's not going to kill anyone. Um, so if you're ever there or wandering around downtown, don't have to worry about stray pennies. Um, you're, you are safe. So these are just a few examples, and, and this show was entertaining, and half the fun was just seeing them try to figure out how in the world to test some of these myths, right? There's another more recent show that does something similar. It's called Adam Ruins Everything. I don't know if you've seen that. It's on Netflix right now, and, and this guy named Adam will go and expose various different parts of society, uh, various different assumptions and things like that, and he shows studies and interviews different specialists. There's one episode he has called Adam Ruins Security, uh, and he makes the case that most of the things that we have in place for security are actually part of something that he refers to as security theater. Uh, and so things like TSA, things like signing whenever you run your credit card, he says, these don't actually do a whole lot to make us more secure. They're more of a show. It's theater. They're, they're putting on a show, and it makes us feel more secure. It feels better when you have to sign uh, in order to buy something. It makes you just feel like, okay, that, I at least had to sign it, right? That's a little more secure. So on and so forth. He, he goes and, like the Mythbusters, just kind of debunks all these different assumptions that we have. He ruins everything um, and all of our assumptions about various things. So what's the point of sharing all of these things? Well, it turns out that we have quite a few assumptions that probably ought to be ruined. We have a lot of myths that might just need to be busted. And it might be entertaining to bust the myth of certain cultural idioms, or it might be important to question some of the various societal assumptions that we have. But there are some much deeper myths and assumptions that are alive within us that might just need to be broken apart a little. Uh, A.W. Tozer, he's a prominent writer, a preacher from last century. He wrote... What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing 
about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This morning, what I want to do is begin to ask the question, what is it that comes into our minds when we think about God? And do we have any God myths that might need to be busted? Do we have any bad theologies lying around there that need to be ruined? Right? So go ahead and open up your Bible to John chapter 5. If you have it, John chapter 5 is where we're going to be this week. We're picking up actually right where we left off last week. So we'll be in 5 chapter 1, or verse 1 rather. Uh, this morning we're continuing that series that we started a few weeks back, looking at the signs throughout the Gospel of John. And throughout this series, we've said that signs are important because they're not an end in themselves. Rather, they're meant to point us somewhere. The signs are meant to lead us to Jesus, to tell us who he is and who we are in him. And so this morning, we're going to read about one of Jesus' signs that actually busts a couple of myths about God that had been present in his own day, and I think might just be present for us today as well. So let's read this together. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called, in Hebrew, Bethzatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up, and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Stand up, take up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well, so do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working. And for this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal with God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the wonder of 
Jesus and the signs that he does to to point us to him and to point us to you. God, thank you for your word, even when it challenges us. I ask that as we reflect on these words, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've got another one of Jesus' signs here. And so far, we've seen a similar pattern emerge from each one of them. In the first two, we saw someone approach Jesus with a need, and Jesus responded to them by saying kind of a, not yet. And then he continues to work the sign, and in the end, people rejoice and believe in him. And here we see a similar pattern, but it's actually reversed. So here, Jesus sees a man in need and approaches him. And then the man responds with kind of a a hesitation, a bit of an objection, uncertainty. But nonetheless, Jesus continues to invite him into healing. He works the sign anyway. But what follows is not belief in him and rejoicing, but rather questioning him and persecution by some of the Jewish leaders who were there. And so now we see that as Jesus' ministry is progressing, his signs are no longer simply responding to needs, but actively challenging certain things, actively claiming certain things. And as I mentioned, Jesus here challenges a couple of assumptions about God that people began to have. This sign exposes some of the myths that had taken root among people. And so I want to look at some of those assumptions, some of those myths together here. So the first myth that we see in this passage is what I'm going to call the myth of the pool. Okay, the myth of the pool. That's this pool that these people are gathering around. We read about it in verse 4, if you look at that. Now, if you're looking at verse 4 and you can't quite find verse 4 in your Bible, that's okay. It's in the footnotes. Uh, so, so verse 4 was not originally in the text. Uh, it was actually added later on as a little note. So you can just think of it as like a very ancient version of a study Bible. So someone took the original notes, and then later on they added something to kind of explain it. So, so what verse 4 says is that people believed that an angel would come and stir up the waters of the pool, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water, was made well from whatever disease that person had. And so what we see here is a kind of superstitious theology that says God is available to some people and not to other people. It's kind of an if-then theology, if you want to put it that way. It says, if I do certain things, then I will get to experience salvation and healing and God's goodness. And it matters that this information is in a footnote and that it's not in the actual text because John is not saying that this is actually the case. Someone else is saying that this is what people believed to be the case. And they had combined a cultural myth about this water bubbling up in the pool with their faith and ended up with a kind of superstitious theology. If I get into the water, then I will be healed. 
And I think that our culture has just as many myths like that built into it, that we attach our well-being to, we attach in some ways our salvation to. You know, if I just made more money, right, then I would be happy. Or if I could just get that other job, right, then I would finally be fulfilled. If I could just get that new gadget, if just my, my body looked different than it does, if, if only I were more popular, more well-known, the list goes on. We have all kinds of cultural myths tied up in money and sex and power and fame, but really those myths are no better than this early superstitious theology, and they lead us to the same exact result. It leads to a kind of hopelessness, and it can lead us to a kind of helplessness. We see this at work in the man who Jesus saw lying by the pool. When Jesus approaches the man, the man responds out of hopelessness and with his own sense of helplessness. In verse 7, he responds to Jesus, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. You see, the man doesn't really respond to Jesus' question. He just kind of regurgitates this myth that he believes. And he regurgitates really the lie that's underneath it. There is no hope for me. I think that's the lie that a lot of us believe as well when we follow our own culture's myths of if, then, right? Now, I love what Jesus does to expose this myth because the man truly does feel hopeless. He truly does have a sense of helplessness. There is a very real kind of grief at work here. And Jesus doesn't start by trying to encourage the man, oh, it's going to be all right. Right? He doesn't teach the man about God's provision and God's availability. He doesn't instruct him, put your hope in God rather than the pool. Right? Any one of those things would have been true, but that's not what Jesus does to break through that hopelessness. Rather, Jesus began with a question. Do you want to be made well? And I think sometimes the greatest spiritual counsel comes in the form of a question. Encouragement, education, and instruction, all of these things are great and necessary. But in the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of grief, each one of those things can often fall on ears that are not ready to hear them. But a question, a question can draw a person back out of their grief and begin to open up ears to receive good news. And I remember learning this while I was in grad school. One of the hallmark experiences of where I went to grad school is a thing that is called practicum. And in practicum, you're placed with a small group of about 10 other students and you got a couple instructors with you, and you all take turns sharing stories. 
Everyone takes turns sharing their own story and then reflecting on those stories together. And in this experience, you learn how to share from your own experience and reflect on it. And you also learn how to listen to other people's experiences and reflect on them well. And so the goal of this experience called practicum is to try to teach students interpersonal skills and also to learn emotional intelligence of some sort. So one day, I'm sitting there in my own practicum, and one of the other students is sharing her story. And in the midst of sharing her story, she suddenly became so overcome by the grief of the story she was sharing. She begins sobbing and is just overcome with, with trauma of, of, that she's recalling and, and all of that. And she broke off and, and just gave way to her tears. Now, I think that many of us, in a scenario like that, would probably have our own maybe pre-programmed way of responding. Some would just sort of, you know, rush in with encouragement and say, hey, it's going to be okay, you're fine. Maybe out of our own anxiety. Some of us would, would switch into just fix-it mode, you know, oh, let me help you, let me do something for you, you know, let me, let me fix it. It's going to be fine, right? Some might move in without words, and just try to offer some kind of, of comfort quietly. And now again, any one of these might very well be a good response, but I'll never forget what our instructor did in that scenario. She, she leaned forward toward the student who was crying and compassionately asked the question, what do you need right now? What is it that you need right now? And suddenly, everything in the room changed. All of us sitting around, kind of the, the pressure lifted off of us to have the right answer, to know the right thing to do, right? And then the student, who had sort of felt out of control with her own grief, was being invited back into control again. She was invited back into herself to speak her own needs into the situation. You know, she was free to say, I, I need to step out and be by myself, or free to say, I, I need all of you here with me. What is it that you need right now? Sometimes the greatest counsel is not having the right answer, but rather having a well-timed question. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He sees this man's hopelessness. And rather than giving him an answer, Jesus brings him a question. And he invites him, do you want to be made well? And I wonder if we took some time to reflect on that question ourselves, what it might reveal in us. What kind of superstitions and cultural myths might be busted, right? What kind of hopelessness that we're living in the midst of might begin to be exposed if we really thought about that question? Do you want to be made well? And it's amidst that that Jesus finally speaks life. Stand up, 
take up your mat and walk. And now at this point, we begin to see another myth come into play. There's another myth that Jesus begins to confront. So midway through verse 9, the text says that all of this has taken place on Sabbath. And there's a group of Jews who are troubled when they see this man walking along with his mat. And in verse 10, they approach the man and say, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat. So if the first myth that we encountered was the myth of the pool, right? Then I think the second myth is one that I'll call the myth of the rule. Because they had made up some rules, and it really truly is a myth. The rule that this group of Jews claims the man to be breaking is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. It's just not there. Now, it is found in a group of writings called the Mishnah, which rabbis had written to provide further instructions for the laws that are in the Old Testament. So in Scripture, we see that Sabbath is a day for rest, right? It's a day to not work. But in the Mishnah, the rabbis had analyzed 39 different classes of work, and they had made up all kinds of things that counted as work. And apparently these still exist today. I heard a story from an old minister that I used to work with who was visiting Jerusalem. And when he took to the elevator uh, down from his hotel room on a Saturday there, he found much to his annoyance that the elevator stopped on every single floor of the hotel and the door opened. Why in the world does it do this? Well, apparently it does this because pressing a button is considered work. And so they've programmed the elevator to where you don't have to press the button. You just walk on and wait every floor down until you get to the floor you need to go to. You don't have to press that button, right? You're not breaking the Sabbath. Now, if the myth of the pool represents a superstitious if-then theology, then I want to suggest that the myth of the rule represents a sort of religious don't and do theology. Now, we don't struggle with this at all in the church, do we? By no means. After all, our own tradition, right? Churches of Christ and the Restoration Movement sought to get rid of all of the Mishnah-like extras of various creeds and confessions and things like that. We were going back to the Bible, right, to recover to restore the New Testament church. And, and just maybe, maybe we have discarded some of those things, but anyone who's been around for a while knows that we have found all kinds of other things to make rules about. We argue about kitchens. We argue about instruments. We argue about how many cups to use in communion. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're better for it. Okay, The reality is that just like these Jews, we often make up our own religious rules to follow. And the myth of the pool may have led to a sense of hopelessness and despair. I think the myth of the rule leads us to a sense of control and pride. 
And even if we don't legalistically enforce our various rules, I bet just a little bit of time of self-reflection would reveal that many of us keep our own tally of rights and wrongs in our head to boost ourselves up so that we can sort of say, well, you know, I'm not quite as bad as that person over there. The myth of the rule becomes a matter of pride, and it becomes a complete distraction to what God is actually up to. Just look at these guys. The man says to them in verse 11, the one who has made me well said to me, take up my mat and walk. And they totally miss the reality that a miracle has just happened. They totally miss the fact that this man has just been healed, that God is up to something. And all they can see is that one of their rules has been broken. And they have got to do something about it. They completely miss God because they're navel-gazing at their own rules. But God doesn't want his people to be a bunch of prideful rule followers. That's not who he calls us to be. However, he does want his people to be set apart. And this is important because I think here in the Northwest, it can be really easy to hear something like, God doesn't want rule followers. And then, you know, we just respond to that by throwing everything off and doing whatever we want. You know, running out into the the forest and claiming that our truth is is my truth and your truth is your truth, and we can kind of do whatever it is that we want to do. But we, too, must heed the words of Jesus. In verse 14, he says, You have been made well. Do not sin anymore. Because God doesn't want a bunch of proud rule followers, but he does want humble Christ followers. And while that means we ought to shed some of our own man-made rules, it also means that we have the much more difficult task of pursuing holiness, of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul addresses this very thing in Colossians. We're in the very last verse of chapter 2. He says that there are Various human commands that have the appearance of wisdom and promoting piety, and they are of no value. And yet, in the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 3, he says, You who are in Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. So, we must turn away from the myth of our own rules and turn toward the truth of God found in Jesus. And that's where this story brings us. This sign has exposed myths and it leads us to the truth of God. So in verse 8, Jesus' words, stand up, expose the myth of the pool. Expose that myth that he had to get into the pool to be healed. When Jesus said, stand up, he exposed that as false. But then he said, take up your mat and walk. And that exposed the other myth, the myth of the rule. 
the myth that we have to do certain things and not do other things. The sign exposed the myths that had prevented people from seeing and experiencing God. And so finally, we can look to Jesus' words once more in verse 17 and see the truth that lies underneath all of this. My Father is working right now, and so am I. I am also working. You see, the problem with all the myths that were fed, the problem with the myths that we see here, is that not one of them requires faith. And isn't that what John is all about? We've been saying over and over again that John writes to draw us into belief, to draw us into trusting God. If-then theology means that I just have to change my circumstances in order to experience salvation, right? And do-don't theology means that I just have to keep certain rules to experience salvation. Neither one of these has anything to do with knowing and trusting God. Beyond the myth of the pool and the myth of the rule is the truth of God. And that calls us to be a people who trust him, who believe in him, that God is working, and we can trust that work. So here's the good news this morning. There is truth beyond all of our myths. There is hope beyond all of our hopelessness. There is freedom beyond all of our rules. And there is holiness beyond all of our sins. It was absolutely crazy for Jesus to tell this lame man to stand up and walk. And it's equally as crazy for Jesus to tell sinners to stop sinning. And yet both are possible in the power of God. Just as God spoke light into darkness, Jesus speaks life to sickness and salvation to our sin. He speaks hope to our despair. And all of that is possible because Jesus, as it says, is equal with God. And he is the one in whom we put our hope. So my challenge to you this week is to meditate on the many things that Jesus has said throughout this passage. I'll repeat them for you again. Let them go deep and see what they bring forth in you. There's first the question, do you want to be made well? Reflect on that this week. What does this question invite? What does it expose? What myths does it begin to bust? So there's the question. There's also the command. Do not sin anymore. As we consider this, what are the rules that we've made up that we need to let go of? And what are the sins 
that we need to repent of? What does it look like to really pursue Christ with our whole heart? To let the Spirit begin to renew us. So there's the question and the command. And the last is the comfort. My Father is working and so am I. What do these words speak to your heart? How might they be a comfort to you? But also, how might they be a call? After all, as we follow Jesus, we begin joining him in the work that he is doing. We begin asking others the very same question that he asked. Do you want to be made well? But as we go about joining him in his work and the many things that we do as a church and as individuals, amidst that work, how can we rest in the knowledge that he is already working and will continue to be? As we go from here today, may God make us well. May he heal us from our sin and show us that he is working. May we rise from here, pick up our mats, and walk, trusting in him. Amen.